Christians, however, uh, rapidly developed the view that they should not have different paths. Mm. Uh, they should be on one path. And so eventually they began to think, and this happens in the middle of the 100s, that heresy is to choose to go your own way in a certain school of thinking, which is not, and this is key, and it is, that way of path is the exact opposite of orthodoxy, which is simply a Greek word that means right thinking. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a pejorative term, right? Uh, there should be one church, and they start to use the word Catholic, which is simply Catholicos, which for in ancient Greek just meant universal all over the place, okay, everywhere, yeah. that had one right mode of thinking, orthodoxy. And therefore, people who strayed from that, who didn't hold to that line, were themselves following a heresy, a school of thought, a choice that is not the truth, and individuals who do that are heretics. Deconstructed these walls and I found a business Where the company line was the only way Hello, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. I'm your host, and I hope you're ready because this is episode number 159. And today we're sitting down with a brand new guest to talk about some fairly new things. His name is David Brackey, and he wrote a book called The Gnostics, subtitled, are you ready for this? Subtitled Myth, Ritual, and Diversity in early Christianity. And this is a topic I'm becoming increasingly passionate about. Uh, not just Gnostics, Gnosticism, but that subtitle, Diversity in Early Christianity. If you're like me, I was raised in this world where I was taught that there's one way to believe. There's always been one way to believe. And anybody who believes differently than that way has strayed off of the path they're following their evil passions, they're doing their own thing, they're heretics, they're blasphemous, whatever. The one right way goes all the way back to the manger. Like Jesus came from heaven, handed the right way to the apostles. They handed it to the, I don't know, the bishops who handed it to the priests and they handed it to the pastors and it made its way all the way up to us today. And there's one single way to believe and think about God and Jesus and the cross. This was ingrained in my head since I was a kid. But it's a lie. <laughs> it's not true. It isn't true. Uh, early Christianity was so diverse. Uh, there were so many different people who believed so many different things regarding God and Jesus and the cross and what it all meant. There was an Orthodox stream. Uh, we call them Proto-Orthodox, the people who, they were the, Orthodox before Orthodox was a thing, but there were many other camps as well. And this Orthodox camp got the power, 
Uh, the power kind of snuffed out the other groups, and they became the ones on the fringes. The Orthodox one became the mainline one, and the rest is, is history. So anyway, that's a, that's a very unscholarly synopsis. <laughs> but this book is fascinating stuff, and uh, David takes us really deep into a lot of things. The book is a very easy read. Um, it's not super deep and confusing, so uh, it's, it's very readable for the average, very accessible for the average reader. So I highly encourage you to go pick it up if this stuff interests you. But today we talk about Gnosticism, uh, the Gnostic Gospels. We talk about heresy, kind of where that word originates from, what it means, lots of things. So I am excited about this episode. Uh, we, we've been diving into this a little bit. We talked to Bart Ehrman a few weeks ago. We talked to Elaine Pagels a little bit before that. Uh, we talked to my friend Sean Garin, who is a pastor in Connecticut, who uh, is preaching through some of the Gnostic texts in his church. Uh, so this is a topic that we're, we're slowly dipping our toe into. Uh, rather than kind of line them up back to back to back, I figured it'd be nice for people to have time to chew on this stuff since some of it is very new. So uh, buckle up, sit down, grab some coffee, grab a notebook and a pen and take some notes. Uh, we're going to have a good time today. Uh, a couple things real quick. Special music today is by my friend Forrest Clay. Uh, he just re He's releasing a new album very soon uh, that kind of walks you through his, his own season of deconstruction, where he kind of rethinks a lot of things in regards to his understanding of God and faith and the church. Really good stuff. Really cool guy. Uh, he will actually be on the show next week. Uh, so his music will be here this week and next week. And next week, you'll get to hear from him and his story. So I'm excited to share that with you. Uh, all the links to his stuff is going to be in the show notes. And uh, also the Heretic uh, the Heretic Shop, if you want to buy a t-shirt, want to buy a hoodie, anything like that, head over there, check it out, all sorts of stuff. All the money from the shop is donated. I don't keep any of it. Uh, I give it away to various uh, people and organizations, and those names and places are in the uh, description of the product. So head over there and check it out. And also Patreon and buy me a coffee. If this show has encouraged you, inspired you, pushed you forward in your faith, uh, made you feel less alone in the journey of your faith, uh, head over there and consider giving some uh, money to the show to support it financially. It helps pay, keep the lights on at the show, it helps pay uh, all the different hosting fees for the blog, for the website, uh, for the podcast, and all different things like that. So all of that to say, my friends, uh, I'm going to be quiet, and we're going to roll the tape on episode number 159. It's my conversation with the legend, the GOAT, David Brackey. Enjoy. Tell me what you want. Because I don't know who to be And I never thought we'd ever see A battle we can't be And I don't know who you are And I don't know who you've been And I never thought well, hello, friends, and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today, we get to sit down with a brand new guest um, to talk about some brand new things for us. His name is David Brackey. Uh, he is an, ex an expert in the field of early Christianity, and I'm super excited uh, to connect with him today. So, David, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to speak with you. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. So before we jump uh, too far into our discussion, maybe take a, a few moments to tell us a little bit about yourself, especially for 
people who maybe aren't too familiar with you and your work. Um, who are you? What do you do? What makes you you? Um, well, I, um, a, I'm a historian of early yeah. Christianity. I teach in the history department at Ohio State. Um, but before coming here, I taught for 19 years in religious studies at Indiana University in Bloomington. Um, so I teach the entire history of Christianity here at Ohio State, but I specialize in the ancient period and mostly work on Gnostics, Gnosticism, and monks, monasticism, that kind of thing, and the formation of the New Testament and, and stuff like that. Have you always been interested in that since you were younger? like early Christianity and Gnostics and that kind of stuff? Well, the Gnostic interest came later in mm -hmm. my kind of graduate career, but I was, uh, so to speak, converted to studying early Christianity when I was an undergraduate. I was an English major as an undergraduate and thought I wanted to be an English professor. But then I took a class in the New Testament, intro mm -hmm. to the New Testament in my sophomore year um, and thought, this is now what I want to do. <laughs> and uh, so that's when I kind of got into this job. But um, I kind of got seduced into Gnostic literature through the language. That is, mm. most, most, Cop most Gnostic literature survives in Coptic. Mm. And uh, so after learning Greek and Latin and Hebrew and all that, I learned Coptic and kind of got into the language and threw that into, into Gnostic stuff. Mm. Now, for people who might not be aware, what exactly is Coptic? What is that? Coptic is the last stage of the Egyptian language. Okay. So if you imagine, you know, the hieroglyphs on pyramids mm -hmm. and then more thousands of years into maybe the 200s and 300s of our era, uh, that's when Coptic became a new written form of the Egyptian language. And it became very important for Christians as they wanted to evangelize among non-Greek speaking people in Egypt in the 200s and into the 300s. And a lot of Christian literature in Greek would be then translated into Coptic. And because Egypt is so dry, you know, it has no rainfall really. Sure. If you take some manuscripts and put them in a jar in a ground somewhere, they will pretty much keep until, until the present. So a lot of lost early Christian literature that was written in Greek in antiquity uh, and no longer survives in Greek now survives in Coptic. So I would imagine then, are there like a lot of people who can read Coptic? Is that like a, are there a lot of scholars who are able to do that or is it like a select group? Well, in early Christianity, quite a few um, because uh, even people who aren't, you learn Coptic for a couple of reasons. One is to do Gnosticism since so much Gnostic stuff survives or you're interested in Egyptian monasticism because a lot of you know, monasticism got going there. Sure. But also you learn Coptic if you're interested in text criticism of the New Testament, mm -hmm. because some of the Coptic translations of the New Testament from Greek into Coptic, they were probably made be earlier or at the same time as our earliest Greek witnesses to the New Testament. Okay. So, there, so Coptic, the Coptic New Testament is itself also a witness to the early text of the New Testament. So a lot of early Christian scholars and New Testament scholars mm -hmm. learn it for that reason as well. Gotcha. So one of the big reasons I brought you on, it's a good, a good segue, is to kind of talk a little bit about this uh, controversial topic of Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. um, I recently read your book, I was telling you before we hit record, uh, Gnostics, I have it in front of me, uh, Myth, Ritual, and Diversity in Early Christianity. I've been listening to some of your stuff on the Greater Courses, um, so between you, like Bart Ehrman, 
Elaine Pagels. I'm deep down this rabbit hole. <laughs> it just seems like it's it's never ending. <laughs> it is uh, never ending. Yes. Good, which is good for those of us who do it. For so. sure. <laughs> so to give you a little bit of uh, my background, I grew up very conservative evangelical world and was essentially taught uh, that Orthodox Christianity, you know, dated all the way back to the manger <laughs> where baby mm-hmm. Jesus kind of brought it to us from heaven. Everything mm-hmm. outside of that is considered heresy, especially the the dirty G word Gnosticism, which I was told was all about this secret and deceptive knowledge. And that was really the extent of everything I was taught. Um, if you ever ask questions about it, it was just, it's wrong. So don't, don't worry about it. Just don't explore it. Just explore the Bible. That's all you need to know. But mm-hmm. then I came across your work and mm-hmm. uh, I was told along with others that it was, you know, off limits. It was dangerous. And that made me want to read it all the more. <laughs> Once I graduated, I was like, I'm going to read all these books. <laughs> mm-hmm. and I've got to tell you, like it really, it really opened my eyes. Like I've been, I have not really been excited about my, my faith, I guess, mm-hmm. as I, as I am now, thanks to mm-hmm. your work and a lot of other works. So I just wanted to start by saying thank you for the yeah. work that you do, because it's really important. And I think a lot of our listeners feel the same way. So thank you. Well, thank you for saying so. It's, it's, it's a joy for me to do, but it's always nice when I learn it also brings <laughs> intellectual and even at times spiritual pleasure to others. Absolutely. So that brings me to my first question. Can you okay. talk to me a little bit about the, the diversity that existed in early Christianity? Because again, I was raised in this arena where it was one way to believe. Uh, and if anybody thought differently, it was because they left that one way to go do something else. And they are wrong and it's evil and they're misguided and stuff like that. But I gather from, from your book, which you're going to have right in front of me uh, mm-hmm. in your lectures, that it's a little bit more complicated than that. So talk to us about that diversity piece. Um, sure. I mean, as early as we can tell and see early Christianity, we mm-hmm. see that early Christians disagreed about stuff. And ob- the earliest Christian literature is the letters of Paul. Mm-hmm. And already we find Paul disagreeing with other Christian leaders about really very essential matters, like, for example, how are non-Jews, Gentiles, to be included in the Christian community, with some Christians arguing, well, they need to get circumcised if they're men and become Jewish and practice the law, right? And Paul says, no, 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 you don't have to do that. You just have to have faith in Christ. And what's interesting about this conflict is that it's clear that Jesus had left no instructions on this matter, right? Mm-hmm. If, if Jesus had said, this is how we're gonna include Gentiles in salvation, they would not have had to have this debate, right? Mm -hmm. So they had lots of issues to work through from the start, as early as we can see, right? Now, diversity in the sense of disagreement about theology and practice and the like, therefore, goes back to the earliest texts that we can find of early Christians. And um, But it really does become more visible to us as you move into the second century, the 100s. Of course, Mm -hmm. Paul wrote in the 50s, right, of the first century. Mm -hmm. And so you know, but as you move into the 100s, this is when Christians really start trying to work out their theology. Um, you know, Paul and the other earliest Christians anticipated that Jesus would come back very soon, right? Paul thought in his own lifetime, Jesus would return and bring a judgment and all that yeah. stuff. So it really isn't until the 100s that they start sitting down and thinking, well, how do we think Jesus is divine or not mm. divine? And how do we think about God? And, and how do we think about how the 
tradition that we are starting to call the Old Testament relates to Jesus in the New Testament. And that's, of course, then when they start to have really complicated disagreements and diversity. Mm. And, and to put even a less theological spin on it, uh, we have to imagine Christians spreading throughout the world, mm -hmm. or the Mediterranean world, um, in a time where, although there was communication, it's not like today. And so you just have the phenomenon of Christianity spreading to, say, Alexandria and Egypt, Rome and Italy, to Asia Minor, which we call Turkey. And Christians would just develop different traditions and views and ways of doing things um, naturally, you know, as you can, as we can imagine. And, and then when they come into communication with one another, they start to see those differences. Mm. So then we, we can't really say then there was one steady stream of Christianity that kind of dated all the way back to when Christianity became a thing, right? Because that's, that's what I was taught was that Orthodox Christianity is Christianity and it's always been Christianity. And that's just the way that it is. Like, that's not really the best way to understand it. Correct. No, I, li I like to say that uh, Christianity is always what people are making. So, <laughs> so you know, you're, uh, people are always deciding what it means to be Christian, how mm -hmm. what kind of behaviors, what kind of beliefs, what kind of things in the world means being Christian. And that's true from the get-go. You yeah. know, it didn't come as a complete package. Here is what Christians believe and do and act and, and how they organize themselves. Instead, Christians are always reinventing deciding what it means to be Christian and arguing about what that means. Mm. So, um, you know, it's, it's certainly possible to speak about large, big things that Christians all shared sure. and the like. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there, you know, there isn't some sort of core thing from which people deviated. Mm. Instead, Christians built on what they inherited from previous Christians and encountered new issues and new problems that others hadn't thought of before. And they mm. had to decide what does this mean for us and so it's always i like to say christianity is always being created so i guess to depress it a little bit more i was thinking as i was thinking about our conversation today and reading through your book i was thinking back to some of my uh, history of christianity classes in seminary and bible college and even if it wasn't like directly stated like the the thing that i always came away with was there basically there was there was orthodox christianity which was correct there were these other branches of christianity and they're all kind of like competing in this race. And the okay. Orthodox Christianity, they won because they had like the divine juice of the <laughs> apostles and the Holy mm -hmm. Spirit fueling mm -hmm. it. But I'm gathering from just our brief discussion so far and also from your book that it's a lot, that's not really the best way to understand it because it feels like maybe the better way to understand it is that all of those branches of Christianity have had some kind of influence on making Christianity what it was and what it continues to be as history goes on. Is that maybe a better way to understand it? Yes, exactly. I think that's exactly right. And, but first we want to give some props to the way you were taught, <laughs> which, um, you know, which at least recognized that Christianity was diverse, right. Yes, to start yeah, with. And yeah. although they attributed the, the victory of the Orthodox to the fact that they had the divine power, right? right? right. Other, uh, you know, more neutral historians might say, oh, well, it was a better organized group. Their um, teachings were more coherent or something yeah. like that. But so, but we want to give credit to that view of things, which sure. is itself not a bad competition and conflict mm -hmm. is not a bad way to think about it. But, but you're right. I mean, the, the problem with that kind of view is as though 
today when we look out and we see Christianity, we tend to see denominations that have like name brands to them. And, you know, you know what a Presbyterian church is like and a Methodist church was like, is like and a Catholic church and what you're going to get if you go there, so to speak. Um, But that was certainly not the case in these early times. There weren't named brand forms of Christianity. And so they're all competing, but they're also interacting with each other, moving between each other. And uh, so, yeah, so it was a, it's a complicated process. And uh, the, the more that we as historians can do to resist putting early Christians into well-defined boxes, the better we, we are doing our jobs probably. Yeah. I think that's why I think I'm, I guess the parallel I'm making in my mind is that when I think about these early branches of Christianity, it's almost seems like various denominations that we have today. Like, I guess, just different ways of thinking about what it means to be a Christian. Some things seems like there's a lot of similarities across the board in some things, but there's also some big disagreements. And I feel like that's what we have today as well. Yeah. And, you know, it's important to realize that in, in antiquity, you know, if we think about the second century and third centuries, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're sitting here kind of thinking, oh, how diverse they were and how much they disagreed about and so forth. But imagine to an outsider, mm-hmm. And these would have been very few people. Let's remember that. We're talking about a minuscule number of folks in the Mm -hmm. 100s in the big Roman empire of 70 million people. To outsiders, they probably all would have looked very, very, very similar. Mm -hmm. The the things that to Christians and to the Christians themselves and that to us look like, wow, that's a big difference. They really are disagreeing in a big way. Probably to a non-Christian outsider would not seem like such a big deal. And so it's always important to kind of keep in our mind difference, but also realize that's coming from a certain perspective where we're looking for that. So let's drill a little bit into the Gnosticism piece. Uh Um, From your book and what you shared with us, um, it seems like the Gnostics were then maybe just one rather smaller group of Christians among many, many other Uh groups of Christians, which again, to me is is news and probably a lot of our listeners as well, because <laughs> I was raised again with this idea that there was two camps, Orthodox, and then everything else is pretty much Gnostic and Orthodox mm-hmm. group won out. So maybe take us a little deeper into maybe a trip to reality <laughs> as to exactly <laughs> what, uh, what, what are, who were the Gnostics and like what set them apart from these other branches of Christianity? Sure. Um, so the Gnostics were a movement of what we might call Christ believers, Jesus believers, right? It's not clear that they used the word Christian. It took a while for that word, mm. right, to kind of be a thing, right? Um, who, like every other people we would call Christian, believed that Jesus was the definitive way that God has acted to save humanity from mm. sin, death, evil, whatever you want to say. Um what set them apart from other Christ believers was their distinct ideas about God. <laughs> and I should say, first of all, that the word Gnostic, which their name comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, but knowledge in a very kind of intense, personal, firsthand way, not book knowledge, like I've read a lot about something, but knowledge where you've actually met someone. An experience. Been to, yeah. An experience, exactly so. And so they were claiming that they've had experience of God, right? Mm-hmm. Gnostic means we, we've had gnosis, we've had knowledge. Um, so what set them apart from other Christians is that they believed that uh, the God of the Old Testament, the God who created this world, and the God who is worshipped by Jews and so forth, um, that this God is not the ultimate God. 
the highest God, that there's a God higher and more divine than the God of the Old Testament who mm -hmm. created this world. But not only this, but the God of the Old Testament is actually a hostile divine being. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, his creation of this world is somewhat flawed, um, and he is out of sync with the higher God and actually hostile to human beings and wants to prevent us from knowing the true higher God. Mm. And what Jesus has done is come and brought to us the possibility of gnosis or knowledge of this higher true divine being who's the true source of mm. all that is. So what really is the flashpoint between Gnostics and other Christ believers is how does Jesus relate or not to the God that we meet in Genesis mm. and the first and all the books of the Bible, who is the, the God of the Jewish people and the ancient Israelites. Mm. And for the Gnostics, Jesus does not come from that God. And that God is actually a kind of hostile, negative figure. That's the big difference okay. between them and other Christ believers. I feel like it's, it gets really confusing because as I was reading your book and there's a couple other books I'm reading, um, what's this other book I'm reading right now? Uh, Introduction to Gnosticism by Nicola Lewis. Yes, great um, and, book. Yeah, and there just seems to be like a lot of, seems to be a lot of these branches of Christianity that had this idea of like not a single God. Like there was, I know like, I know there's like debate about whether like the Valentinians were really Gnostic or not Gnostic, but like they have this, this idea of, it seems to me, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in the letter to Flora, is that, is that the name of mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. letter? There's like that talk about the, the God of the law. Like there's the, there's the, mm -hmm. the perfect God. Then there's like this middle of the road God. And there's like the devil. So it seems like there's these multiple layers of divine. And I feel like it gets really confusing when you're looking at all the different ones and trying to see, well, who's Gnostic and who's not Gnostic. <laughs> That's right. And I mean, the important thing to keep in mind when you mm -hmm. study antiquity is that no one, and I want to repeat, no one was monotheistic mm. in the way that we are today, in which we tend to think, or at least some people think, right, <laughs> right. that there's only one God. Yeah. And so there's only one being who can be called God and can mm. be termed divine and so forth. But everybody in the ancient world, Jews, quote unquote, pagans, mm -hmm. and then Christians, believed actually in a multitude of divine beings, mm -hmm. usually with one God on top, so to speak, right? So right. to be monotheistic meant in antiquity that there was a true highest God who's the source of everything, right? Mm -hmm. But let's even remember St. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, there are many gods and many lords, but mm -hmm. we worship, right? So mm -hmm. he recognizes the existence of other gods. They are not true gods. I mean, for Paul, Apollo, and the other Greek divinities are real. They're just lower beings that you They're not the best, be. right? They're not the best, right? right? They're not the God of Israel who is the best God, right? right. So, so the question always is, how do you understand uh, the, you know, for cr Christians in the 100s, what they were mm -hmm. debating in a way is where does Jesus belong in this kind of system of divinity yeah. and where does the god of the old testament belong mm. and uh christians held every possible way of <laughs> thinking about that right sure. so um and and some of them become quite complicated 
as you notice. So mm -hmm. I was, you know, when you look at the Gnostics, I've covered over the fact that they believe in a, in a very, this one God is actually multiple and, and has all these kind of divine eons and facets to itself mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, so they all have a kind of sense of multiplicity in God, but the question is how they understood that multiplicity. And that's where they all ended up in, in disagreement with one another and in sure. vigorous discussions. Now, when you say about the, the term gnosis refers to knowledge and an mm -hmm. experiential knowledge. So like having like the, the, the Gnostics that would have claimed to have this experience with God, mm -hmm. wouldn't it be true that like every, every branch of Christianity, because I would imagine would be kind of claiming the same, because I would even think that someone like, um, uh, like the early church fathers, like Irenaeus, like he maybe mm -hmm. like, I would imagine like them arguing as well that they had an experience with God, which is what made them correct. So isn't everybody kind of claiming, claiming <laughs> Gnosis? <laughs> yes, exactly. That's the point is that um, Gnosis itself was um, something that, you know, all Christians said that they had and yeah. that they could offer a path to, right? So yeah. Gnosis, the word occurs in New Testament texts and incurred, you know, throughout early Christian yeah. literature, it's what people wanted. So what's distinct about the Gnostics is not that they sought Gnosis or offered it to others, but it seems that they made it part of their name. They named, you know, they, they said, this is who we are. We are the Gnostics. We don't just now, have Gnosis. We are the Gnostics. We are it, you know? <laughs> right. And so, so it's a very, you know, kind of aggressive claim, right? Yeah. Um, but what you find almost right away is what we would call quote unquote, Orthodox Christians reclaiming that title. Mm. Yeah. So you find, um, you know, uh, other Christians who are not Gnostics saying, no, 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 we have the true Gnosis. Mm. And so if you follow us, you become the true Gnostic. Right. It. Yeah. So it was a, you know, Gnostic was a, a positive term. Um, no one didn't want to be Gnostic or have Gnosis, but the Gnostics made it central to their identity in the way of saying this is this is who we are. That's why we, we're not quite sure whether they would have also known or used the term Christian as well, even though mm -hmm. Jesus was absolutely central to them. Sure, sure. So yeah. then what were, were there different, trying to get a picture in my head, were there different than like branches underneath the term of Gnostic, because again, going back to like, I know like Valentinian, some people say they were Gnostic, some people say they weren't. You had like Sethians, I think. And like, so are there different branches underneath that term as well? This of course is the kind of thing that scholars argue about. Okay, so- And I want you to answer about, in five minutes. <laughs> in five minutes, no. Well, I, I'll just say that um, uh, for, uh, since, whenever, since yeah. the second century, right? Yeah. Um, uh, people who are not Gnostic have argued about how to classify and think about other groups, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And so essentially the question now that is, and you can decide how important this really is, is that some scholars believe that there is a kind of overarching category that we'll call Gnosticism that would include these people called Valentinians, that would include these people called Sethians, mm -hmm. that would include um, other kind of strange people like the Gospel of Thomas, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then later on, perhaps Manichaean Christians who show up in the late 200s and mm -hmm. the later. So they see it as a kind of large phenomenon that they'll call Gnosticism, where these groups share certain characteristics, right? Yeah. Um, then there are other scholars who believe we should just stop doing that because it, it 
too easily confuses all these groups and make them sound like they're one big mass of horrible heretics, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so instead, we should just drop the whole term Gnosticism mm -hmm. and just study individual texts and groups on their own without making, you know, these kind of lump category to put them all in. Yeah, because that term I, carries so much baggage with exactly, it. Exactly, precisely yeah. from your education. So if you say, oh, there's a group <laughs> that belongs to the Gnosticism category, right. you think heretic, horrible, right. and all these yeah. other terrible things come to your mind, right? Yeah. Um, so I belong to a group of scholars who believe that there, there was a group that used the term Gnostic for themselves. Mm -hmm. They are usually the ones also called Sethians by other scholars uh, for good reasons, because they tended to identify Seth, Adam and Eve's third child as a kind of spiritual ancestor. If you wanna think about a hero figure for them. Um, and so, and then we would not apply, I would not the term Gnostic in this sense to say Valentinian Christians and others that they, they are kind of different and not part of that. So, but this is a, big issue that I and other historians, you know, we argue and debate about when we get together in meetings and write books and articles and, and <laughs> that kind of thing. So sure. There you I, go. Think, I think, I uh, think, I think you said in your book is Karen King is somebody who mm -hmm. talks about like getting rid of the term. Is that correct? Yes. The two big historians who say we should not use this term really are yeah. Karen King, who teaches at Harvard and Michael Williams, who teaches at the University of Washington. And he's kind of the big pioneer in the 90s, he wrote a book called Rethinking Gnosticism, in mm. which he said, we should just get rid of this category. And then Karen King in the early 2000s wrote a book called What is Gnosticism? In which she says, you know, when scholars define Gnosticism, what they're really doing is saying what they defining for them, mm. what is true and false Christianity. Mm. And that's not necessarily a project that historians should should be engaging in. We should be really reading these texts just for themselves and seeing what they say. So, uh, so you know, this has been very important, but a, you know, a large number of historians resist this, resist this argument. So, uh, so it's quite a little discussion. And and for those of us who study religion in history, this, it's, you know, this is a key question about how we categorize and think about ancient religious people. That makes sense. So then what's the deal then with the Gnostic texts? Because mm -hmm. again, like I was taught, you know, the Bible, the Protestant Bible is the Bible and however sure. it came to be, it came to be. Uh, but everything that didn't get included in that is considered a, a Gnostic text, but that also isn't necessarily the case because we obviously have the, the Nag Hammadi um, right. and a lot of the the texts in there, from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, but some are considered Gnostic, some are not considered Gnostic. So what exactly makes a text Gnostic versus not Gnostic? And at the end of the day, like, does it really even matter if the text is Gnostic or not? <laughs> right. Well, this, this, of course, is precisely the issue, right? Yeah. But, um, but the, the thing to say is that, you know, there's a lot of what we would call non-canonical literature, right, mm -hmm. that comes from Christians from the 100s, 200s, and uh, potentially even before 100 that didn't get put in the New Testament, right? No. And some of this has continued to be transmitted in its original Greek or Latin or whatever for centuries. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these things are like gospels that, you know, that expand on the present gospels or acts of various apostles and so forth. And it has been a tendency if the theology in these texts are a little off by later standards of orthodoxy, they've been kind of labeled 
Gnostic, mm. right? But uh, most scholars uh, would reserve the term when you look at Gnostic literature for texts that really seem to come from the Gnostics who held the kind of belief I was just talking about, about mm. the God of the Old Testament. Sure. And, uh, you know, we did not have any of that to read mm. until around the turn of the 20th century when a first little Coptic codex turned up that had stuff in it. And then the Nag Hammadi things were found in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, so it's only been really for the last like, say 50 years. And it wasn't until the early 70s that all the Nag Hammadi texts were really available to historians to read. So it's only been about 50 years that scholars have been able to kind of sort through this literature and think about it. Um, and so, yeah, what we tend now is to restrict the term Gnostic for literature that seems to clearly come from people who held these very specific views that Gnostics held in the, in the 100s. Got it. So then what is like the, for instance, to throw out one that a lot of people are probably familiar with, um, the Gospel of Thomas, because I've heard differing things about that. I've heard some people say it's Gnostic. Most people say it's not Gnostic, like something like that. What do, what do we do with a book like that? That's that's great. That's a great example. So the mm -hmm. uh, the Gospel of Thomas was one of the first things found at Nag Hammadi that became available to people in the, mm -hmm. in the early 60s. And yes, originally it was just labeled Gnostic. And, and, it be, and that's because it heavily emphasizes having this kind of personal, direct gnosis or knowledge of God mm -hmm. through Jesus. So it's very kind of mystical and it's the, the true self is the soul. There is no idea of a resurrection of the body. And these were seen as kind of traditional Gnostic ideas. But nowadays, as you have also seen, the vast majority of scholars would not call it Gnostic. Mm -hmm. And that's because it doesn't have the very distinctive mythological teachings yeah. that you see in true Gnostic writings. Mm -hmm. So most people would kind of just see Thomas now as kind of a Christian text that's very, very Platonist, like, mm. you know, really into spirituality and not being, not the material world and stuff like that. But it's, it's a great example of a text that, yeah, in the middle part of the last century, people would have said, yeah, that's a Gnostic gospel. But now in the 2020s, most historians would not use the term Gnostic for it. So how many books would you say, how many letters, whatever, would you say are Gnostic? Like, are we talking about 10, 15, 30, 50? Like just a ballpark <laughs> amount. <laughs> we're talking in the teens. In the teens. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So if you use, I mean, if you were to say, what does, what would all scholars say this is Gnostic? Even yeah. people like me who have a kind of restricted sense of that thing and people who have mm -hmm. a wider sense, it's not many. It's, you mm -hmm. know, maybe 10 to 15, most of which were found at Nag Hammadi. You know, the great example of a text not found at Nag Hammadi, but found elsewhere is the Gospel of Judas, which is definitely, you know, it's only appeared in 2006, but is also clearly Gnostic. So it's not a lot, you know, it's, it's out of the vast array of texts that we have that are not in the New Testament that Christians wrote in the first, you know, two or 300 years of Christianity. It's, it's not a lot of stuff yeah. is the thing to say. I think that's helpful to know because I mean, I, I have like the Gnostic Bible on my shelf and that's like, just, <laughs> it looks like this gargantuan book that's thicker than my Bible. <laughs> and yes, it, sometimes no. it feels like there's all these, there's all these Gnostic texts, but I think it's helpful to give some perspective that, like you said, there's, we're talking to teens. 
of right. I'd say books. that the Gnostic Bible is a great example of, you know, people come up with all sorts of different books for this stuff yeah. uh, that takes a very expansive sense of the mm -hmm. term Gnostic. And so it, yeah. it collects a lot of non-canonical, that is not in the New Testament books, that do emphasize this kind of personal, not direct knowledge of God, and that really sees the true self as spiritual sure. and not material and so forth. It's a great collection, by the way, and it's got mm -hmm. lots of fun stuff to read in it, but it uses a, a kind of concept of Gnostic that is much bigger. Got it. So a very wide umbrella. Yeah. Very wide umbrella. Exactly okay. so. That yes. makes sense. So next question I want to ask you about is the term um, heresy. And you talk sure. about this a little bit in your book. Um, I've been called a, a heretic many times. Um, so many times I actually made a hat. For myself, that's <laughs> got the front. I proudly wear it on my head. Where where did this term originate, and how how has it evolved over time uh, from that original place to become something that is used in 2021? You know that a lot of conservative Christians will call podcasters or authors or whatever <laughs> this term. Like, how did this thing evolve to be where it is today? Okay, so the the word heresy is a is simply a Greek word, mm -hmm. um, hierasis, which uh, its root meaning is choice, mm. kind of like self determination. A high race, you know, my high racist is to drink Coke rather than Pepsi. It's my choice, right? It's what I've decided. I agree. Right? I agree. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> um, but in antiquity, it eventually was before there was Christianity, mm -hmm. it would be applied to say different schools of thought within a field or discipline. Mm -hmm. So for example, there were different high races of medicine, mm -hmm. like the Hippocratic school, or the Methodist school, right? And so you would follow your chosen path to think about it this way, right? Okay, so, and it, even among scholar, uh, early Jews, it was sometimes used in this neutral fashion, just to say there are different kinds of Jews. Sure. Some are Sadducees, some are Pharisees, and they're all part of a different heresy, but mm -hmm. not in the negative sense. <laughs> Christians, however, uh, rapidly developed the view that they should not have different paths. Mm. Uh, they should be on one path. And so eventually they began to think, and this happens in the middle of the 100s, mm -hmm. that heresy is to choose to go your own way in a certain school of thinking, which is not, and this is key, and it is, that way of path is the exact opposite of orthodoxy, which is mm -hmm. simply a Greek word that means right thinking. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a pejorative term, right? Uh, there should be one church and they start to use the word Catholic, which is simply Catholicos, which for in ancient Greek just meant universal all over the place, okay? Everywhere yeah. that had one right mode of thinking, orthodoxy. And therefore people who strayed from that, who didn't hold to that line, were themselves following a heresy, a school of thought, a choice that is not the truth, and individuals who do that are heretics, mm. right? So, you know, in the 100s, they, this is the way they started to talk, right, mm -hmm. the Christians, and they kind of turned heresy into a bad word, right? But they really couldn't do much about it because, you know, they were just people, in the no, world. No power, right? <laughs> they had no power to do right. anything about it. So if someone called you a heretic and said, you're, you shouldn't be part of our group anymore, they could say, you can't be part of our group. You, the heretic, could just go off and find your own group. There's right. no- Or make deal. my own group. You make your own group where <laughs> right. you're the orthodoxy and those other people are the heretics, right? Um, so, but of course, what happens in the 300s is that the, the imperial, Roman imperial government 
becomes supportive of the church. And that's when you start to get persecution of heretics and an ability to actually enforce and orthodoxy, right? Now, of course, what happens over time is that these terms, orthodoxy and heresy and heretic, get exported out of Christianity mm-hmm. into all sorts of other areas where a group will say there's one right way to think. And if you don't think that, you're a heretic. And heretic becomes the insider who's part of the group who really is an outsider because he or she doesn't think properly right so when other people call you a heretic for example they are recognizing your christianity right you can't be a heretic and not be a christian Mm. from the christian perspective right Right. they're saying you're part of us but you have gone off the path right Right. um and so yeah but and now we'll use the term you know people will say oh you know they'll apply it to things like well like today medicine people will say there's an orthodox way of thinking about this disease and mm-hmm. people who don't are heretics within the world of medicine and so forth but uh but the crucial shift in the use of this term in a negative way by christians was in the middle of the 100s mm. pretty much. Yeah. and you had a lot of church fathers at that point kind of writing their expansive texts right on the different heresies that were out there. That's right. So that's when we start to get uh, a new form of writing Mm -hmm. that we call heresiology. Just like like we have biology and geology, you have heresiology and (laughs) and you start to have major figures write books that essentially catalog and give the teachings of various heretical Christians so that Mm. other Christians can recognize these heresies when they see them. And mm. sometimes they also then give refutations. Sometimes you just get catalogs of heresies. This is what this group believes. This is what this group believes. But other times you get, this is what they believe. And now let me tell you what orthodoxy is so that right. you can refute um, these, these heretics when you right. read them. Right. Now, for the longest time, all we had in terms of these heresies, the different schools of thought were what the what the enemies had to say about it right like in their long expansive text because we didn't have i mean it's it's funny to think like we didn't have this stuff forever like when i think about like the non-commodity text or think about the different gnostic texts in my mind i think well we've had these forever but like you said before the gospel of judas we're talking 2006 i think you said is that correct yes, that's when it was yeah. yeah so like this stuff is very very new so i guess for the longest time all we had to go off of were what the heresiology What's that word? Heresiologist had to say about it. And so I guess my question then would be is, is what we're finding now regarding these branches, these schools of thought, does it line up fairly well with what the enemies had to say? Did they ever exaggerate different things from understanding or? Yes, the, your question is exactly right, right? So you should imagine for uh, centuries, historians and of course, critical study of the history of Christianity began, you know, in the early modern period, right? All they had were these reports from heresiologists. Yeah. And so when the non-commodity texts were found, it was a big deal, right? And now we could actually see what these people themselves wrote. Mm-hmm. And the answer is, do they correspond to the heresiologist reports? Yes and no. Mm. That is, every now and then some of the texts do correspond. And that's how we know, for example, that the Gospel of Judas is Gnostic because a heresiologist writing around the year 180 named Irenaeus says, oh, the Gnostics put out a book called Gospel of Judas. Mm. 
So sometimes they, and, and when you read the Gospel of Judas, it's exactly what Irenaeus said it was, right? Mm. So, so yes, sometimes it checks out. A lot of times we have stuff that doesn't match anything that any heresiologist has ever said. So, yeah. you know, and then we have stuff that doesn't corroborate some of these teachings. Now, does that just mean we haven't found the text that matches that Could be. group? Yeah. I mean, that's a possibility. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of the interesting things is many of these heresiologists would report that these Gnostics and other heretics were horrible sinners, right? Mm. That they not only had bad ideas, but they did bad things like, mm. you know, have sex with outside marriage and do other and you know, horrible things. And what's fascinating is when you get all these, now that we have these texts, mm -hmm. we see no basis for that kind of view, right? Mm -hmm. They tend to, if anything, they tend to be very into not having sex and being right. ascetic and so forth. Sure, sure. So the answer is yes, some things match and some things don't. And uh, yeah. It's a mixed bag. <laughs> it's a mixed bag. And that's yep. what, uh, that's what's the fun about being a historian after these things were discovered, the non-commodity, is that part of it is trying to figure out you know, it's, it's like you have a bunch of jigsaw puzzle pieces and you had originally, these heresiologists had put them together for you, but now sure. you have the pieces yourself and you can kind of see where they were right and where they were wrong. And we still at times rely on them. I mean, how do we know the gospel of Judas is, comes from Gnostics because Irenaeus told us. Right. right. And um, so, you know, we still use them, but, uh, but now we can do so with some check on their truth. Yes. Yes, yes, for sure. So last question for you. Um, mm -hmm. Speak for a moment to the person listening who uh, was raised like myself. So conservative, mm -hmm. evangelical, orthodoxy, rule supreme, Gnosticism, the text, all that stuff off limits. Maybe that person's listening today and they're, they're wanting to begin to dive into this world, but they have no idea where to begin because they have absolutely no knowledge on this topic, as is true with myself. Uh, so first of all, what word of encouragement would you give to that person? And then secondly, other than your book, the Gnostics, like what are some resources that are like accessible to the average person would you suggest? Sure. Um, well, first of all, the reason to do this is potentially is, I mean, even if you're, if you don't want to become a heretic yourself. Um, <laughs> if you which, do, I'll give you a hat. I'll mail you yeah, a hat. <laughs> so you, you've got to, you can get a hat, right? right. But, uh, but even if you don't want to become a heretic yourself, mm -hmm. um, you you know Christianity in part became what it is in opposition to these texts, and so it's kind of interesting just to understand how Christianity developed to read yes. them, right? Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I, I definitely, and I'll just say this to people who may be looking for some spiritual truth in them: I think these Gnostic texts, strictly speaking, are not perhaps the greatest resources for a contemporary spirituality, but they may find like Valentinian Christian texts and the Gospel of Thomas to kind of be more potentially spiritually yeah. meaningful, right? Yeah. Contemporary Christians who call themselves Gnostics tend to find the Valentinian texts and Gospel of Thomas their most the things that are most meaningful to them. Where should you read? I actually think you've already mentioned one. If you're just wading into this, I think Nicola Denzi Lewis's uh, introduction to Gnosticism, which is from Oxford University Press, is a very accessible and good introduction yeah. and really like tells you all about each of these texts and, you know, the important facets of them. And then to read them for yourselves, I'm going to engage in a little bit of self-promotion here, uh, <laughs> which is that um, I have just completed um, making a second edition of a book called The Gnostic Scriptures. Mm. 
which was originally published in 1987 by my dissertation director, Bentley Layton, mm. L-A-Y-T-O-N, and it was published in 87. But um, I recently finished making a second edition of that book, and it will appear this summer from Yale University Press in July. Oh, right. And it's, uh, I'm happy to say, will be coming out in paperback and a reasonable price. Great. So, uh, so anyway, but it has, you know, what it's divided between like classic Gnostic scriptures, the gospel of Judas and this other book, the secret book of John. These are truly Gnostic things mm -hmm. that 10 to 15 things, you know, that I yeah. told you about, sure. but then it also has Valentinian works in it and it has the gospel of Thomas. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of, and it gives you pretty good introductions to each of them and footnotes to help right. you understand okay. the weirdness that you're reading because some of these texts <laughs> right. are strange. Yeah. So, um, uh, so anyway, so there's that. And then one final resource that mm -hmm. um, is that if you just want to read all the Nag Hammadi stuff, Gnostic, mm -hmm. not Gnostic, Valentinian, whatever, whatever's at Nag Hammadi, yeah. then the book is there's a book called the Nag Hammadi Scriptures edited by Marvin Meyer. And that is, is a great resource as well. So those are the places I would go if you're going to start out on a path of Gnostic discovery. Beautiful. Well, my friend, we are just about um, out of time, but this has been, this has been a really good conversation. Thank you again for making the time to uh, talk with me. It was my pleasure. It was great. And uh, real quick, where can people find you online to engage with your work? Or do you have any social media type stuff? Or I'm not a big social media person, <laughs> but if they just Google my name, David Bracky in Ohio State, it'll take them to my webpage at OSU and also a page on academia.edu where I've posted my papers and writings and all that stuff and they can read them. Excellent. Well, I'll put those links in the show notes. Maybe great. we can do this again sometime. It would be great. I like doing this. It was great. Perfect. Does God have a face does he have a body or even a name if he does does he know that i'm alive is god even here does she care that i doubt does she care So
Her face must look 